Podcast reporting from Winterfell, also known as the Stark Residence. RIP to Game of Thrones. That last season was a travesty. I'm joined by a special gentleman. Please introduce yourself, sir. Yes, I am Philip Stark of the House Stark. <laughs> also, Gardenfield. Also an asshole, a pain in my ass. If you know, you know. Pause. Uh, Pause. So. Where were you born? Where did you grow up, Philip? I was born by the river in a little tent. Sam Cook. Yeah. No. I was born in a small town um, <clears throat> on the other side of Gloucester, Virginia, in Hampton Roads, a town called Kilmonic. It's Rappahannock, right across the river from Tappahannock. Where somebody named Chris Brown is from. True, it's facts. Um, I was raised in Baltimore, Maryland. <clears throat> I spent a lot of time back and forth, kind of the old adage, the country mouse, city mouse, because my uncle, who was the same age as I am, you know, we, we spent a lot of time together down there in Virginia, and you know, along with my little brother, Brian, AKA baby boy. So, you know. Shout out to him. Yeah, that's, that's where I'm from. So how was it growing up? Because you didn't have technology. You was born in Flintstone age. So how was it growing <clears throat> up for you? Yeah, I watched Flintstones, oh smart ass boy. <laughs> I watched Flintstones, but I wasn't, wasn't born in the stone. You wasn't pedaling with your feet. Yeah, I didn't no. pedal with okay. my feet. I actually pushed the gas pedal. Okay, but how was it like being a kid <clears throat> and growing up in those times? It, I mean, it was cool. It wasn't, wasn't so far, uh, you know, a ghost, but I mean, it doesn't seem like that, but. You know, we just, we hung out. We, we stayed outside, you know. When the sun came up, we was outside. We was playing sports. We would play baseball, basketball, football, all in one day, going back to back. You know, my brother and I, my brother-in-law, Eric Harris, you know, um, we, we, we did it all, you know. Stayed outside. Wasn't no, it's too hot to be outside. We didn't come in the house to, to get water running in and out. You know, letting out the fan, because we ain't had no fucking air. We had a fucking fan in the window. Now, my mom and dad, they had a fan in their bedroom, and if you wanted to get cool, you you go up in their room and sit down on the floor, but you had to be what they like to call the fuck quiet. Uh, yeah. Um, in the black community, that is a very known thing. <laughs> That's right. Don't make no noise or ask no question. It wasn't no uh, 3,000 channel cable TV. We had we, we, we operate off the antenna. Mm-hmm. You know, we caught, you know, the local channels. And what, the, what came on, that's what we watched, you know. So we grew up watching, you know, <laughs> the same shit. Everybody watched the same show. If something came on, everybody was talking about, hey, did you see such and such? Well, if you watched TV, you saw it because that was your only fucking choice. And if you missed it, you missed it. You missed it because it, no it, it wasn't. There was none of that. Nah, it, was, it wasn't going to come back on. You couldn't, hey, you couldn't on demand that shit. Nope. It, you know. it was what it was. That's right. That's right. So I, I think of you as a very successful man. So one would think uh, maybe you come from a whole bunch of money. Is that true or 
do you, did you have to go endure some things? Well, no, um, definitely didn't come from money. You know, uh, Biggie said it best. You know, in my Biggie small voice, you know, one no nigga broke as me. I like that. I had two pairs of leaves. Besides that, mm-hmm. the pinstripes and the grays. That's right. You know about that? Brooklyn. I know about all yeah, that. Yeah. No, so, no, nah, we ain't have a whole lot of shit. You go school shopping, you get eight pair of shoes, right? <clears throat> and you make the motherfuckers last. Remember, those shoes were the shoes that you wore on the weekends and stuff like that. And remember, mind you, I told you, we played outside all the time. And, you know, you wore shoes out. What? And, and no, I didn't have fucking Nikes. I had motherfucking Pro Kids mm-hmm. or some Converse. Very rarely that I have Converse. I had Pro Kids, maybe some some Felis or some fucking Betas. People don't even know what that shit is, you know. And I would I would run so hard on my shoes that I would wear the bottoms of them out. Cause I'm gonna tell you, I'm gonna let you a little let you know uh, a little known secret. I invented fucking shoe goo. So what happened, you know, um, wore a hole in the bottom of my shoe. And my mom was always, I grew up in the good times era too. And my mom's favorite, she used to always say, hey, times are tight. So I was real reluctant to ask my mom for anything because she said times was tight. You watch good times, you know what the fuck tight was. And you lived in your house, you know what tight was. You don't get shit. <laughs> don't ask for shit, you don't want shit. You know, but um, my mom was like, you know, she washed our clothes and stuff. She was like trying to figure out. Why the, why the fuck do all your socks have fucking holes in them? Like at the bottom. And, you know, she was trying to figure that stuff out, you know. And one day, <clears throat> she just looked. She went up in our room, looked at the bottom of my shoe, saw this big-ass hole with a piece of cardboard on top of the hole. You take the insole out, put the cardboard down, put the insole back in, flip it upside down, and fill that shit with Elmer's glue. Let it get hard. And that, you could actually play on that for a couple of days. Now, you, if you, you probably could walk on it longer, but you could play, you know, for a couple of days. But eventually, that shit would wear out if it got wet, different things. I didn't, you know, fine-tune the, the, um, the, uh, the formula or anything, add anything to it, epoxy and all that. I didn't patent it. I damn sure didn't patent it because I'd have made a little bit of money. That would have been the money I'd have came into. But, nah, didn't, didn't, didn't come from money. Um, I was fiscally... Poor, but I was spiritually rich. And you got a lot of love. I got a lot of love. I'm, I'm blessed. I, I don't, I ain't no way I can really explain it, you know. I never, you know, wanted for anything, but I wanted a lot of shit. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. That, I mean, that's very true because I think people have a weird idea of success. And success to me is happiness. Yeah. So, it could be somebody that has inherited a house that works at McDonald's and they could pay their bills and they're very happy. They go fishing every weekend and mm-hmm. hang with their cousins and they live in a small town and they're very successful. Then there's a man or a woman that lives on the top of Calabasas or wherever beautiful place and they can't trust anyone. Uh, they don't know who really loves them or not. And mm-hmm. they contemplate daily, is this life worth living? Right. So to me, it depends on, you know, perspective. Life is perspective. So how much that motivates you that when I get older, I'm going to get these sneakers, I'm going to get these different things, I'm going to really bust my ass to get what I want. Yeah. I mean, it motivated me a lot. 
I remember one time uh, I was at um, Mondawmin Mall. I was at this um, this uh, store called, um, what was it? I think it was Charlie Rudo Sports Store. We used to call it Charlie Ripoff back in the day because they used to bump their prices up real high because the drug dealers would buy all the fucking shit and they didn't give a fuck how much it cost. Mm-hmm. And back then, you know, in the 80s, <clears throat> Adidas sweatsuits was like the shit. Adidas and came back around, but Adidas sweatsuits was the shit. Run DMC had them joints, and I always wanted a, 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 a motherfucking Adidas sweatsuit. And my mom, you know, we was in the store, we were just looking around because she worked at the bank in the mall, and I just happened to be up there one day, and we w- walked down there, and um, she was like, uh, I said, Mom, you think I can get one of these sweatsuits? And my mom looked, you know, looked at the rack, looked at the price of it, and she said, baby, these... These sweatsuits are made for professional athletes. And at that point in my mind, you know, I think I was probably about 11. I was like, shit, well, I gotta be a professional athlete. You know, so I started looking at sports a lot differently. I started taking it a lot more seriously. I was always naturally gifted, you know, and that became a fixation in my mind. I'm gonna play pro sports, I'm going pro, you know, so. So sports is, you know, I talked to Dietrich mm-hmm. um, earlier, another Baltimore guy, Maryland guy, Edgewood, um, and sports seems like everything in mm-hmm. Baltimore, yeah. and the Poly and Dunbar is a historic rivalry, so talk about you uh, coming into yourself as an athlete and the Poly and Dunbar rivalry. Well, back in the 80s, um, I, I played at Poly, of course, and, uh, the Baltimore Polytechnic Institute, and you know, uh, we were in the A conference. The A conference was the top conference in Maryland. Dunbar at the time played in the B conference, so our paths never crossed on on the basketball. You know, I mean, on, on playing football, basketball was different. They were in the fucking A conference because they were like back then in, in, in the 80, 80 to eighty four. The time I was in high school, they was ranked number one in the nation. And who do they have on that team? Oh, shit. A guy by the name of Tyrone Muggsy Bowles. They had David Wingate. They had Reggie Lewis. They had Herman Harid. They had Mike Brown. They had uh, Terry Perry uh, Dawson, the twins. I mean, um, uh, they had um, Tim Dawson. You know, um, they had Terry Perry Dozier, the Dozier twins. You know, they were stacked. That whole, you know, and then others followed. You know, Sam Cassell came out of Dunbar. You know, a lot of other folks, you know, it's just historic programs. So if football-wise, back when I was there, you know, athletically, they probably could have matched up. But the how the conference was set up, we never played each other, you know. But, um, you know, I had a lot of respect for them boys, uh, basketball. They, they were some great athletes. They were some great athletes. Now, I know you watched uh, the 30 for 30 and everybody. If you didn't see it, you should watch it on Dunbar. And you, y'all remember a lot of the same people. Oh, yeah, we know. We grew time. up because my wife, Bridget, shit, she, she went to Dunbar. My sister went to Dunbar. My brother went to Dunbar. My sister-in-law was there. My, fuck, my dad went to Dunbar. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. So I was basically the only one that did. <laughs> you know, and when I tried to, I actually tried to... Uh, Transfer and my mom was like, she wasn't having that. She was like, you at the top academic school in Maryland. Yeah. 
we're not going <laughs> just for the sports. Right, we're not doing that. Those are a knee, <clears throat> knee injury right. away from never playing again. And my mom didn't, she didn't really care for me playing sports at all. If Especially you, football. No. In those days where you, you know, get your bell rung, as right. they call it, and you wipe your mud right. off your shoulder pads and you get right. up and play again. You got a concussion every game. There was no concussion protocol. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you got up and you could walk, Back to the bench or back to the huddle, fuck it, you stayed in the game. Yeah, I mean, so obviously you're a pretty smart guy because you have a nice size head. I am. But uh, after school, you know, what was your thought process like? Because, I mean, you love sports, and I mean, uh, we're watching a game right now of some team that uh, a lot of people don't know. Please uh, tell them the story about a team we're watching right now. Yeah, well, there's a. well, New England Patriots are on. You know, I really, I never really had love for the Patriots, but um, this is the eighties. Yeah, they, yeah. they, you know, they were not really. They run a really good program, but <clears throat> as I said, you know, I had aspirations to become, you know, a pro athlete, so I could get some of the things. I didn't. I didn't have Nike shoes or any of that fancy shit growing up. None of that, you know. Um, so I had I had you know aspirations of going to play pro ball, and so <clears throat> I played uh, again at Poly. Uh, I was very very good. Uh, my name is still on the wall at that. Uh, so what were your options going into the last couple months of your senior year? Maybe May, <clears throat> you know. May, June, June is over, so right. your senior year, what was your thought process on how life was shaping out and what you should do? Well, one, uh, it kind of really took shape in my, in my junior year. Um, I, I, played, I played varsity my sophomore, junior, senior year. I didn't play my freshman year. Um, I didn't play football at school at all, as a matter of fact. Um, and, you know, although I was, you know, pretty good, I was ranked in scoring, you know. I had a high score to touch ratio. When I touched about pretty much, you know, I scored, you know. Um, and I was in the newspaper, you know, things of that nature on a regular basis. But still, I wasn't getting any 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 feedback. I wasn't, you know, getting any um, any offers or anything from many colleges at that time. And my coach, Augie Wobble, he wasn't really the type of coach that kind of promotes and sells his players. That's why I even considered going to Dunbar because Bob Wade, he promoted his players. He had co- coaches come down. He had a great relationship with the coaches. And I'm Georgetown, sure, right. I imagine. Close. Yeah. Like he had, he had, I mean, he was well-connected. He, he was a Baltimore coach back in the day, you know. Mm-hmm. So, but um, I was like, man, you know, and I went to the mall, that same mall that I went with my mom, ironically. Um, I went with a friend after second semester exams. Um, and Polly, if you know anything about Polly, Polly's a really academically challenging school. We have a, a 100% graduation rate at our school. But even even bigger than that, everybody, you know, majority of the people that graduate from poly go off and go to college or they go into industry or something right away. They they turn out to be pretty successful people, you know. Um, 
And so it, it was just challenging, you know, stressful during that time exams because, you know, it was just it was just a, a load. So I'm at the mall with a friend of mine. He's a senior and he goes up into the recruiting office, the army recruiting office. And mind you, I said, um, you know, early in my life, I was like, man, the army, I would never go in the army, man. Fuck that shit. So I'm just sitting there. He's going to talk to his recruiter, going in the back. And I'm just sitting there in the little lobby just waiting. I'm looking at all the little posters and shit and say, be all you can be and all this bullshit. And then, um, they had these posters that say, a buddy-buddy system. You can go in with a friend and y'all be stationed everywhere. Go through training so you're not doing it alone. They had so many fucking gimmicks and, you know, um, processes and stuff. Bonuses, signing bonuses, you know. Depending on the job you take, if you get a really, really high demand, dangerous ass fucking job that could probably kill you, that wouldn't even transfer back to civilian life, they give you a twenty thousand dollar bonus or some shit like that, and that's a lot of shit to take in. A lot of money, you know. And I'm sitting there, and I'm like, whoa, just reading, and like, damn, I didn't realize. Well, just as I, you know, <laughs> was looking at that shit, a recruiter came out of nowhere. And he swooped down on me like motherfucking prey. And he just was spitting so much game. He was so fucking charismatic and, and, and smooth talking, you know. And he had me, he changed my, he gave me a whole paradigm shift. He changed my whole thought process into, whoa, wait a minute. You know, uh, you can get money to go to college. I'm like, oh, college? Okay. Now, now you got my attention. You know, you can go to college for free. And I'm thinking, okay, this would take a burden off my mom. And besides, I had a younger brother and sister to come after me. And I didn't want to take resources off the table from them. You know, so that shit started sounding good. I'm like, okay. Well, shit. Long story short, you know, he, he talked me into considering the military. Because, fuck, nobody was, uh, you know, calling me up to play football. And, and shit, I was you know, really undersized. I was a real little dude. I was I was muscular, I was fast as the wind blow, but I was small and, you know, maybe, you know, I was, you know, In the not age of the burly back. Right. I, I wasn't I wasn't, you know, you know, I was second guessing my ability to play, not the ability, but, you know, the likelihood of being recruited, you know, at that next level. And they had this Sports Illustrated had this program on. Um, where they promoted young athletes, you know, back in the day. Um, you subscribe to the magazine and you'll see, like, um, they have in the back of the paper, in the back of the magazine, they have, like, the top prospects per state, you know. And I, I never saw my name in there. And then they had this um, show on TV, Sports Illustrated had a show that featured, like, you know, athletes from around the country. And they, one time, they talked about, you know, the, the, the average size or the successful size of a back or the desired size of a back and I was well under that shit I wasn't even in, yeah. in the conversation mm -hmm. so what year 84 this was 83 yeah. 83 Eight and I was like shit you know you know so I was like maybe this army stuff is not so bad so I go home and I talk to my mom about it you know, I talked to my dad about it. He, like, he just sports you whatever you want to do. You know, my mom was like, nah, hell no. You ain't going to the army. You might as well forget about that. You know, we, you know, we're going to college, this, that, and the third. And when I tell you I had to beg, 
beg, beg, beg and plead with my mom for several months. Finally, my mom said, okay. And you were underage to start Yeah, because I was 16. I, was, I graduated when I was 17, which was still underage. But I signed up for the delayed entry program at 16. I signed the documents to go into the military. My mom had to sign. And if you know anything about my mom, my mom had the most beautiful handwriting in the world. It was like it rivaled calligraphy. It was just gorgeous, right? Penmanship. And when she signed it, I still had the document. I could pull it out my files. I'll show it to you one day. Her signature on there was like scribble. Because I, 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 I figured in my mind, she probably had a plan to go back and say, I didn't sign that shit no. or whatever, you she know. Was but she lady. was like, <laughs> she did. So I was in the delayed entry program. And fast forward to senior year, you know, still playing ball, still balling, doing my thing, you know. Um, got selected for the um, All-Star game, the Baltimore City versus the County All-Stars. Now, they do similar games now, like the Under Armour game and all that shit. They didn't have any of that shit back then, you know. But that was the, like the, the, uh, a key matchup of the top talent in the state of Maryland. And I, got, I was selected, you know. And um, one day I was at school and I got, I got, you know, you get called on the intercom. Hey, uh, send... Philip Stark to the front office. Now back then, if somebody call you to the motherfucking office, that wasn't nothing good. Everybody looking up like, what the fuck? I was real quiet and shy in school, you know? I was dark skinned, I'm still dark skinned, but back in the 80s, dark skin wasn't in, right? I had short black wavy hair, I was bow-legged and muscular. You know, I had a chipped tooth because I got hit by a car when I was eight. You know, and black people, we didn't go to the dentist. Mm. You know, we self-healed and shit. So I, I really had, you know, low self-concept, low self-esteem, but I could jone real hard. That was my defense mechanism. So somebody tried to jump, you know, talk shit about me. You gotta develop it. Yeah, I, I used to destroy him, you know, and that was one of my, one of my backups. I said, I could do this comedy shit. My dad was like, man, I said, you ain't gonna go nowhere being a class clown. Cause my grades were all straight A's, you know. Straight A's. I had, I had, uh, you know, an opportunity to go to any Ivy League school in the fucking country because of my grades, you know. So we um, go down. I get called down to the office, and um, I get down to the office. And that's a long ass fucking walk because I'm like, what the fuck is going on? You have no idea. So I get down there and um, I walk to the front office, and they were like. Um, they wait. You need to go into the um, into the conference room. I'm like, what the fuck am I going? I'm like, oh shit. I'm just nervous and scared. I go in there, and there's two other guys from my football team, um, uh, Brian Stewart and Mel Truitt. Brian Stewart was a short uh, pulling guard, but he was fast as shit. He was short, stocky around, but he would knock the shit out you. Mel Truitt was our center. And I went in there, and it was a um, coach from Central State University in Wilberforce, Ohio. Um, can't remember the coach's name. I always called him Jimmy Johnson, but it wasn't. But he was also the girls' head track coach. But he, he came down, and he, he was like, I sat down, and he was like, I guess he was already talking to them. But when I walked in the room, he um, 
reached down and he had a bag on the floor. And he reached down and he pulled out this big ass black box. He sat on the table, reached down and grabbed three more, set them beside each other. Then he opened each box one at a time. Boom, 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 boom. And each one of those boxes was a fucking large ass jeweled, blinked out national championship ring. And he says to me, he said, Phil Stark, if you come to Central State and play football for us, you'll start as a freshman. Now, in my head, I'm like, the fuck? Just, what did he just say to me? And I'm like... It's a big deal. Hell yeah. Only problem is, I fucking raised my hand and swore into going to the motherfucking military. This is exclusive. I did not hear this story ever. I've been around for a long time. Hey, I'm going to tell you, in, in the whole world, maybe only four, five people know this story. Alright. This is recorded exclusive. So I'm like, what the fuck? And I'm in there and when I tell you I didn't utter a word to this coach. As a matter of fact, this same shit happened to me week after week. I had Bobby Ross, who was the head coach of University of Maryland at the time, came to the school to recruit me. Same shit. He didn't say I would start, but you know, different coaches, University of Tennessee, West Virginia. Um, you know, uh, a bunch of, I mean, just Towson, just a whole Washington and Lee, just a whole bunch of other schools came down to recruit me. And I'm like, what the fuck? I didn't say, I didn't say one word to any of them. And it was so disturbing to my teammates because I, I wasn't always the one in there. It'd probably be me, Brian Stewart, uh, Mel Truitt, uh, Mike Dorsey, somebody else. You know, somebody was always in the room and they were like, yo, Phil, man, what the fuck, man? And I was so frustrated, man. I just walked off, man. Again, I was soft-spoken. I didn't talk a lot because I had a chipped tooth. And when I laughed, I covered my mouth. Even when I talked, sometimes I covered my mouth, you know, because I was embarrassed, you know. But I was like, man, what the fuck? And I couldn't go home and tell my mom because I had to beg her to sign. And she felt like she didn't sign her son away to the fucking army, you know. So I was like in, in between a rock and a hard place. So the day that I was supposed to go into the army, mind you, I passed up on every one of them scholarship offers. Mind you, I had, I played lacrosse also. And I had just, amount, just as many lacrosse scholarships as I had football scholarships. Harvard wanted me to play football for them. But in my mind, I, I said I wouldn't, because I didn't say anything in there. I wouldn't play for Harvard because they don't fucking play on TV anyway. And that's some ignorant shit right there. That's the most dumb. I thought about that shit the other day driving. I was like, that was the dumbest shit in the fucking world. You live and you learn. You know? So I did not find out. Well, the day I shipped out to go into the military was August 21st, 1984. On that day, on that exact same day, my parents, my brother and sister, they loaded up in the car with me. They took me to the MEP station where I shipped out. I was supposed to ship out from. And, you know, we went in there, we said our goodbyes and stuff. Then I went to this room. They left and they went down to Virginia to, to Kilmonic where we were born. They were having a family gathering. We always did that, mm-hmm. you know. And I went, you know, in, uh, into this conference room. The conference room was about, about the size of this room, about a 14 by 14 room, 
you know, and it was filled with other folks in civilian clothes. And I'll never forget it. This little short white sailor came in with his Cracker Jack uniform on. I mean, that shit was sharp, pressed nicely. And he said, listen up. He said, if any of you have any reservations or if you have changed your mind about being in the military, there's the door right there. And the door was open, left open intentionally. And I'm looking at the door. Again, having questions, but not saying anything. Just like I didn't say anything to my family or to anybody for that matter, you know. And I'm like, surely he couldn't be talking to me because I swore in one time. And I, in my head, I always knew that if you swore in, or I thought that you swore in, they got you. Uncle Sam got you. They don't, Uncle Sam don't fucking play, Mm-mm. you know. Go to jail. So uh, I, I didn't ask the question again. And he said, okay, if you have no reservations, raise your hand again. I'm like, no, I already swore one. Do I need to do this again? Didn't ask. I just put my hand up. And I, I, I swore to defend and uphold the Constitution of the United States, from, United States of America against all enemies, foreign and domestic. August 21st, 1984. Then I shipped off to fucking Fort Lindenwood. But it was at that moment right there that I knew... Hell, I, I, well, I realized later, I didn't have to go in the military. I had a fucking choice, you know. I didn't have to, you know, I could have went home and, and, you know, said something to my mom. I, I, if I had it to do over again, I would have. But I didn't want to break my mom's heart because, one, if I go home and say, Mom, guess what? All these colleges want me to come play for them for free. And I didn't sign up for the military. And she signs. That would have broke her heart. So I never told my mom. Now, you know I lost my mom two years ago. That story, hey, she can hear from heaven right now. But I didn't want to hurt my mom, so I didn't. And then, you know, I went to the military, and, I, shit, I was in D1 college football shape. So the physical part wasn't, wasn't a problem for me. And the mental part, because I was so fucking silly, you know, in my mind, you have concepts, you, you have visions about what the military is going to be like, the drill sergeants fucking with people and stuff like that. What part of Alabama are you Yeah, because motherfucker asked me, Sergeant King, <laughs> i never forget a white guy from North Carolina. He said, he talked like, oh, oh Stark, <laughs> what part of Alabama are you from? Because I was a, a, a little cock, little cock strong, dark skinned nigga. To this white dude. To this white dude. What part of Alabama? What part of Alabama are you from, son? Like I ain't from no motherfucking Alabama. I'm from Baltimore. (laughs) Like, oh shit. Stark. He called me Coin. My nickname was Coin. Coin Stark. When they want me, he say Coin. And it sounded like he was saying coin, but it was corn. Coin. Come over here and show these motherfuckers how to do some push-ups, corn. Cohen, where the fuck you say he was from? Baltimore. <laughs> you motherfucker, you ain't, ain't nobody from, ain't no nobody from Baltimore, but steers and quiz. Nah. I don't see no motherfucking horn. Like, what the fuck is wrong with this dude? Now, that is, seems like a real military story of yeah. how it used to be for real. Hey, for I'm real. telling you, when, they, when, when I got to Fort Leonard Wood that night, they took us to the reception station, which was out in the middle of fucking nowhere. And we had all these motherfuckers. They would come from all walks of life, right? And these motherfuckers was talking, they had the dreams of being Rambo, and when Rambo wasn't even fucking out, but they wanted to be Green Berets, and these motherfuckers was born again hard. And I'm like, okay, I'm just sitting down listening to all these motherfuckers, everybody is from somewhere else. 
You had motherfuckers in there that never seen a black person before in person. Yeah. You know, motherfuckers had never had shoes on their fucking feet. And you had to put boots on. Now motherfuckers, they struggled, boy. And that night, you know, they had this motherfucking um, drill sergeant. I forget his name, but he was a little mean son of a bitch. He was about, he was about four foot two. He loved that shit. He was about four foot two. And the motherfucker had to stand on a picnic table to talk to all the fucking recruits. You know, stood on a picnic table, was cussing motherfuckers out. And he was on the picnic table and he made everybody drop. He said, half left, face. Front lean the rest position, move, get your dirty ass on that goddamn ground. We doing push-ups. He on the motherfucking table. Stay with me. He knocking them bitches out all day. Motherfuckers in there coughing and fucking <laughs> what the fuck? Getting dirty, you in your civilian clothes. We haven't even got uniforms and shit yet. Oh, them motherfuckers was like, hey, y'all motherfuckers better get y'all shit together. See Jody at the house right now. Y'all motherfuckers up here. Jody up in the house digging in your in your girl's ass right now. <laughs> he got your girl and gone. He, he, singing motherfucking cadence about Jody motherfucker. And that night, you hear motherfuckers crying and shit. It's like we in fucking jail. I'm like, what the fuck is wrong with these niggas? Motherfuckers and they crying. Hey, and next morning, <laughs> next morning you wake up. Hey, where's such and such such and that? Them motherfuckers tapped out. They went fucking home. They shipped them bitches back home. Put them on the bus. I'm like, what the fuck? So mentally, it's more mental. Oh, yeah. Everybody, they know when you're going in. Right. So right. physically, hopefully, you get your ass and shit. Right. Yeah, but mentally, I don't know if yeah. a lot of people prepared to hear about that girl. They weren't, re- they weren't ready for that shit, boy. And I'm telling you, I was so fucking silly. I'm just laughing. And my only thing, I got in trouble for was fucking not being able to hold my smile sometimes. So I, I learned that I developed a stone face. And I would bite my lip, and I know I bit a hole in my lip, blood on my, I had a bloody lip. I'm like, man, but this is every day because the shit was just funny. Oh, man. It was just funny, oh, boy. Just man. shit. I mean, it's just like shit off a movie. That just sounds like, man, uh, yeah. man, crazy time. So speaking of a girl, you had... A girl for a very, very long time, a beautiful queen. Somebody I never heard raise a voice, say a curse word, live wrong, anything. Um, I don't know uh, who the fuck you talking about. Oh, 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 oh. Well, you know, you know, I'm trying to paint a picture here. (laughs) You paint the wrong motherfucker. So, so tell me about the decision as a young man to Mm -hmm. really become a man fully, to not only join the military but to Mm -hmm. also get married at a very young age. How was that for you? I mean, it was it was different, but I was a different type of dude. Um, I've known my wife since I was about twelve. I, um, I used to play baseball for her dad. Me and her brother, we were real cool growing up. And when I started playing baseball, she wasn't even around. She was in Virginia, you know, during the time, and. Um, her oldest sister, Renee, I actually had a little crush on her, but I found out that she was like older. Mm-hmm. And back then, you said, motherfucker, a girl older than you, even if it was like one, two, three years or whatever, you're like, oh shit, hell no. You just X that shit from your mind. It wasn't the look. Right. I wasn't, and, and I wasn't going to say anything because again, I was shy. Yeah, you and know, that was the days probably too where the older dudes was picking up girls at the high school. Probably. Everybody yeah. wanted oh, yeah. young, young. That's right. Everybody, Everybody wanted Right, young. you know. And um, 
you know, I got to uh, Bridget came back from from some from the uh, you know down in she, in Emporia. She used to go down there every Emporia, summer. Virginia. Emporia, Virginia. You talk about the country. That's the country with a K. They think they, you know, that's big city, the big city of Emporia, Virginia. Oh yeah, do not speed in Emporia. Right. And then I found out that um, she was the same age as me. We were the same age, and actually our birthdays were eight days apart, you know. But the problem was, she didn't really like me. She didn't really like me. She said that she, um, she thought that I was arrogant and thought I was all that. I was like, that's the total opposite of me. I've never portrayed myself as that. I said, people speak highly of me, uh, how I play sports and stuff like that. But that's not me speaking. I never spoke of myself. They did the talking. They did the talking. I'm like, you know. And um, we just, you know, over time, we just became really, really good friends, you know. And um, I remember... You know, we, we were like friends forever, but in my mind, shit, I'm thinking we go together. I never wrote down on the paper, do you want to go with me? Yes, no, or maybe, and let her circle one. I never put myself out there like that because I could, I could not, I still cannot handle rejection to this day. None of that. So I didn't even put that shit out there like that, but, you know, and um, we never did that. But I assumed that she was my girl, and I found out... And actually, I bet she wasn't my girl when another young lady who moved into the into the neighborhood, she was, I think I was a, I maybe I was in ninth grade. I was in the ninth grade. She was like a freshman in college. And she moved to the neighborhood. And um, she saw me and Bridget walking from the store. And I was carrying the bags, of course, like I always did. Gentlemen. And, you know, walking and stuff home. And the, the girl... Pull Bridget to the side. Well, she ain't pulled to the side. She said, hey, Bridget. She said, is Phil your boyfriend? And Bridget was like, ew. And she was like, ew, no. I'm like, oh, shit. Well, damn. <laughs> well, well, shit, right? I'm like, I'm thinking this is my girl. I started to drop them fucking groceries right there. You, <laughs> you know? take them. <laughs> take these fucking groceries. But I didn't. I was like, but I was hurt, man. I'm telling you. When I, when I tell you, I was crushed, destroyed. I distanced myself from her. You know, and then, um, you know, by, by me always being over at Eric's house, me and Bridget, we just, you know, got back close and then, you know, just started going steady. And, you know, shit. Shortly thereafter, I was in the military. And before I went to, when I, when I was, uh, what was it? I went to the military August 21st, 1984, went through training and all that, came home for Christmas Exodus, and me and Bridget got married a few months later on New Year's Eve. Special, special uh, day every year. It's yeah. a celebration. Yeah. And, but the, uh, uh, another little known fact people don't know, we actually went to the courthouse on the 30th, but we didn't have a witness, so we went and got Kevin, and we came back the next day. On the thirty first, just so had to be New Year's Eve, so it wasn't a planned thing. It was just how how shit worked out. And it worked out great. Yeah. And another quick story that I could share, because I was there, is that you never had a real wedding. Nope. You just had a courthouse wedding. Courthouse wedding. So uh, I'm gonna say was it your twenty five yep. year anniversary? Yep. Uh, every year, uh, we'll get into that later. You're a part of a 
fraternity, the only fraternity. The only uh, fraternity that call it. Right. Um, Omega Sci-Fi. So, uh, you know, you had a celebration. Y'all were at a hotel, and mm-hmm. she had no idea. Right. And you finally got a chance to give her that wedding. Yeah, so I did a surprise renewal. That's a beautiful on the 25 years, not knowing. She thinking this it was a perfect setup because right. it's just a party. We, we had do party. this all the time. Oh, it's every year. Yep. No big deal. But that was something that was very yeah. special to be a part of. Yeah. And I mean, you showed uh, by example what it is to be a real man and to set things up mm-hmm. in a really nice way. Yep. So fast forward and we're going back. You're in the military. You're married. Then... You have kids and everything. Yeah. So how was it? Of course, it was great. It was storybook. You, you had all this money. You had this. You had no, that. I had. That, that's how it was, right? I still ain't had shit, right? But I'm, <laughs> and I thought about this, and I, I do frequently. You know, um, when I finished training, my first duty station was at White Sands Missile Range in New Mexico. Now, mind you, I never really. I'd only been on a plane one time before I went to the military to fly that they flew me to St. Louis. Ironically, I'd been on the plane the only other time going to St. Louis to visit with my uncle Carly, who was a, a, a doctor um, living in St. Louis. And me, him, and my brother went to, um, flew up there. But um, we went to um, New Mexico and that's where, that's where Shay was born. Shay was born actually in El Paso, Texas, which is like 42 miles on, on a one, it was one road in from New Mexico to El Paso, Texas. It took us about, about an hour riding through the desert, you know, and um, we lived on base and we live on base, you know, they take your, your allowance you get for being married, your BAQ, that will cover your, your house your utilities and shit like that. But, um, and I had like a, a two bedroom house with a garage, and, you know, and it was cool. You know, I didn't have to pay anything additional. If you want a cable or whatever, you could pay for that or you could just yeah. use the TV, but it wasn't that expensive. And I remember every two weeks, my check being like 300 and something dollars. And I'm like, I look back and I'm like, how the fuck did we survive on this little bit of ass money? You know, I had a car, I went, uh, had saved up and bought a little U72, 77 uh, uh, Chrysler Cordoba. It was blue with white leather seats and a crank sunroof. It had power windows and shit. You know, had some true white walls on it. <laughs> Man. Yeah, and, and I rode that until it broke down. Then I got an 82 Pontiac Grand Prix. That I rode to the wheels fell off. And I even had that over in Germany after we left New Mexico. But Shay was born there. And, you know, we 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 lived a simple life. You know, for dinner, every Friday, we had sloppy joe. We had fucking sandwich and french fries. Every motherfucking, every motherfucking Friday, you know. And on payday, um... We would sometimes ride down to Las Cruces, New Mexico, um, you know, and, and you know, treat ourselves when we go to Godfather's Pizza oh, yeah. and get us a pie. You know, eat that and have the leftovers and stuff, man. But we we didn't have anything, man, but we didn't we, we had each other, you know. 
because Bridget had never been on a plane. And when she got to New Mexico, I remember um, she had to change planes and planes in Dallas. And when she got there, all she saw was motherfuckers with big belt buckles and cowboy hats. And she was scared. She was about to get back on the plane and go back <laughs> to fucking Maryland. And there were no cell phones or nothing like that. She was calling me on the payphone, scared. I'm like, girl, just go to your terminal and I'll be there. So when you get off the plane, I'm going to be right there waiting for you. Because it wasn't no motherfucking TSA or nothing like that. You could go all the way to the gate where the people get off the flight at and just wait for them right there. As soon as they get off the plane, you right there. Now, I ain't even remember that. You know? Before 9-11, yeah. it was very, very free because nobody had no crazy idea right. like that. Right, Ever, ever before yeah. that. Mm-hmm. So you're there and you're going through it and eventually, you know, you get in a better position. What mm-hmm. are some of the cool things you got to do and build and because I mean you're very crafty yeah. and a smart young gentleman so what are some of the cool things you got to do in the military in oh, your time? Just uh, hanging out of helicopters on ropes you know repelling and um, my, my job I was a combat engineer so I got to do a lot of uh, bridging building you know bridging gaps building bridges Bailey Bridge M46 um, nomenclature bridge we also got to blow up a lot of shit. I'm a demolitions expert. I, I work well with C4 and fucking TNT. I'm an expert at every fucking weapon, you know, so I will fucking shoot your face all the way off <laughs> from far away and up close, you yes. know. But, um, I mean, just, you know, the training, the training was, was real cool. Um, I got to see a lot of different places. I, I've, I've been around the world three times. And I, I've been to places you can't even find on a fucking map. Yeah. You know, and I think I, that's the amazing part of the military is the travel. Like, yeah. My brother now is in Africa. Yeah. He's in the near Russia. Then he might go to Asia. Then yeah. he might go everywhere. Yeah. I think if you yeah. have something, you should take full advantage of whatever it has mm-hmm. in there. And I agree. Then, I can never finish this interview without um, July 27th of 1988. It was a special date for you because why? Right, yeah. That's when my, that's when my baby girl was born. And uh, she was actually the only child that we actually planned to have. Of course, she was supposed to be a boy. She was supposed to be almost retiring by now. And right, family. yeah. And uh, she was like, I mean, I, in my head, I just knew she was going to be my son. And, uh, you know, I was there for the delivery of each of my kids. I was right there trying to do the leg work, but Bridge would never let me. You know, uh, when the doctors would go away, you know, she, and they leave instructions, they say, hey, we get a contraction, make sure you push. You know, and I would watch the monitor and I see that a contraction occurred. I'm like, she didn't push. I'm like, hey. You didn't push, you need to make sure you push. Let's do it, you know. And she, you know, she was like, you, you're you not going to have, um, she thought I was trying to deliver the baby, which I was. I wanted to deliver my own fucking kid. <laughs> and she hollered, nurse! <laughs> you know, and they came back and they thought I was, you know, doing something. And she was like, he's trying to, he's trying to deliver the baby. I'm like, it's mine, you know, but nah. But how was it the first time for Shay? How, how nervous were you? Uh, I, I wasn't, I, to be honest, I really wasn't nervous because I had experienced that before. I hadn't seen it firsthand, but um, Renee's uh, daughter, 
oldest daughter, Taisha. Special shout out. Was my was my first child. That was our first child because Bridget and I we raised her. First baby. That was our first baby, and and she was the reason I wanted a daughter first mm-hmm. of my own. Even though she was my baby, you know I wanted I wanted a daughter of my own, and I got Shay. She caused. We used to call her cause, like short for Bill Cosby. <laughs> before he, before the Jello pudding pop, before pudding gate. Yeah, but yeah. you know, there's a lot of trial and error. I would imagine. Yeah, you know, right. first kids. So that's right. Like, hey, that's you right. Know, but it's special. All your kids are special. That's right. But so you're in the military. So are you going to school while you're in the military? Yes. Education is big for you. Oh, yeah, because I was taking advantage. Like I said, I, that was one of the main reasons I went. So every opportunity I had, every every base that I went to, I was at school. I was in college. I was taking correspondence courses to learn more knowledge from a military standpoint because I wanted to make rank. And I did make rank so fast. I was a sergeant my first enlistment. So I was I was flying through the ranks, and I was, you know, enjoying it. You know, the more rank you get, the more money, more responsibility, you know. So it was working out, you know. And, um, you know, we got used to that lifestyle. And we went from, you know, a four-year enlistment to extending and re-enlisting two more years here, four years here. You know, because after my first enlistment, I was actually leaning towards, you know, going, getting out of the military and going um, to college. And um, one of the colleges that offered me a scholarship when I graduated from high school, uh, I was in contact with, and he was willing to give me that same scholarship. So I had um, had it set up where I was going to re-enlist to come back to the United States from Germany, because we were in Germany at the time. And um, I, I re-enlisted to go to Fort Meade. Fort Meade, I, was, I would be right there by the school so I can commute, I can still kind of do it and transition out, mm-hmm. you know. But the Army, uh, they gave me what we like to call the green weenie, the camouflage dick, if you will. And they fucked up, they fucked up my orders, even though I had signed uh, when I re-enlisted to go to Fort Meade, they had me on orders to go to motherfucking uh, uh, Louisiana, Fort Polk out in the middle of no fucking where. And I was like, fuck that, I'm not doing that. So they went back in and they fixed it and they the closest they could get me is fucking Fort Eustis, Virginia. Right by where I was born. Mm-hmm. So I took that shit. And um, you know, my hope my but it was too far to commute to go to Towson to get my scholarship back. And I I mean I had did everything but sign for my room. You know, at the dorm and pay for my jersey. But for whatever reason, we had to pay for our jersey. If you had to put your name on the back. So I don't know. Why the fuck do we got to pay for your jersey? But that's, yeah, that, that was different times. <laughs> different budgets, right? And one of my classmates, one of my former teammates, he was a freshman when I was a, a senior. He was a captain at Towson. And he was like, yo, we, oh, we got to get this dude. But that didn't work out. That fell through. And now that was Coach Gordy Combs at university at Towson State University. But while I was there at Fort Eustis, they had a semi-pro team right there called the Peninsula Pirates. They later changed the name to the Poseidons. And their helmets had the same logo as Hampton University. 
And it was right there. They were right there by each other. I played at the end at Todd Stadium, right down there where Mike Vick and all them boys used to play and shit. Yeah. You know, and um, I played down there. Um, you know, for a couple of years while I was there, and um, at during that time frame. I had um, guys that you know, I played on the all-star team with in high school that went off to play, you know, play college ball. I had my boy Garrick McPherson was on the team with Doug Flutie at Boston College. And he was one of the ones going up in the air for that, for that Hail Mary. That big Hail Mary. You know, and me and Garrick, we, uh, he lived in Hollander Ridge. was across 95 from where we stayed, from our, our neighborhood. And I remember I showed you where we used to run across the highway to go play basketball. It was in Highland Ridge, which is no longer there now. And um, Garrick was in my class in sixth grade. And I remember uh, in sixth grade, McGarrick, we used to call him, his name was Garrick McPherson. But he, he went by McGarrick off of, uh, like McGarrick from Hawaii 5 Oh, yeah. Yeah. So um, he said, um, when I go to college, I'm going to know the name and I'm playing football. And I had never even thought about playing college football at that younger age until McGarrett said that shit. And I was saying, shit, well, I'm going to go somewhere, too. I don't know where the fuck I'm going to go, but I'm, I'm going to go play some ball somewhere, too. You know? So, uh, you know, that, 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 was, that, was, that, was, that was pretty cool right there. So I started playing semi-pro football, and then um, I got an uh, idea. I said, shit, I'm going to apply for the motherfucking NFL like people apply for jobs. So I wrote, I typed up letters to, you know, local teams like the Red, Washington Redskins, the Baltimore Colts, and uh, the New England Patriots because my boy McGarrett played for the Patriots. And his quarterback was motherfucking Doug Flutie. And they were trash. They were trash. So, you know. Right. So uh, I got an invitation. Um, the uh, director of pro scouting, a guy by the name of Bill McPeak, um, has sent me a letter. Um, I still had that letter, as a matter of fact. Um, invited me um, to come to the Plan B free agent camp, you know. And I'm like, okay. Uh, something came up that kind of excluded me from that. I think it was the fucking Operation Desert Shield, <laughs> the Operation Desert Storm. All that shit went out the window. I ended up back over in Germany. And, uh, Started playing, you know, after all that shit, when I started playing football over there. And then had the NFL Europe and the European football. So I started playing over there, and I was getting the best of both worlds because I was playing pro football, and I was still in the military. Yep. So I was like, well, shit, you know. I, at that time, I had, you know, a family. I had two kids, and it, it, being responsible and a loving fucking, you know, father and husband, I didn't... I wasn't going to risk money in the hand for a possible opportunity. Yeah. I wasn't going to cancel. You're not little young book, no. Right. I, I wasn't going to. I was still pretty young, but I, I just. As responsibility. Yeah, as far as responsibility. Yeah, I was grown. I, I couldn't risk, put my family, you know, in jeopardy, have them. I have feel like less kid yeah. ages you like five yeah. years. Oh, so yeah. if you have two kids, if you was and if you have two, if you have a girl, that's yeah. ten years per girl. Ooh, so you yeah, like fifty old. almost. Yeah. Yeah, trying to it's still in my damn twenties. Yeah, know? yeah. So you end up. Long story short, you are in the military. You travel Europe. You mm -hmm. raise your kids. Mm -hmm. You provided a life, and you kind of grew up 
abroad. I did. You know, because yeah. you, you spent the majority of time overseas. You were over there. So you ended up in Georgia and you become an educator. Mm-hmm. So when did you, you know, get your first teaching assignment or something like that? Well, when I was, when I was uh, in Germany, uh, remember I told you early on that I didn't really speak, speak up. I didn't advocate for myself. And I always felt like if I had a motherfucker that would have said, hey, man, you need to do this, 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 and this to be on the right track. You need to do this, 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 so you can be prepared to go to college to do whatever. If I had that motherfucker right there. So I was like, yo, I'm going to be that motherfucker. You know, so that's when I started coaching football because I love the sport. But I was also smart. So I used to tutor kids. And I was like, well, shit. When I get out the military, this education shit seems the like the thing. Right. They because they got sports everywhere right. in schools. And the real reason, I'm like, shit, after being gone for so long, being in the military, shit, you got the whole summer, you got the summers off, all the holidays, you can't beat that shit. And but, you could do 20 and 20. Right. 20 years as far as retirement goes. Yeah. You already did your 20 yeah. in the military. Yeah. But now you slowly but surely coming up on the 20 in education. That's right. So um, that's what got me in the, in the door of education. You know, and when I actually got my first teaching job here in Georgia, I went to my first ever interview process because I had never had a job other than the military other than hustling like cutting grass shoveling the snow that was my hustle yeah you know so I went to a job fair and I was still in the military and I interviewed with every school in Henry County uh, elementary middle and high school and I'd already had my degrees I was going to school while I was in college so so I already had a degree and um my um Interview. I interviewed with everybody. The last school I interviewed with was uh, Stockbridge High, and uh, the principal's name was um, Dr. Hurt. He was a young, dynamic um, brother. He was an alpha, but he was real cool. But he was like in his 20s, and he was already a doctor and a principal. And I'm like, yo, this motherfucker's bad. Yeah. He stopped the interview. We were talking, um, and mind you, I interviewed with probably about 30, had 30 interviews. He was the last one, and um, I was talking to him, and he was just like, hey, can I stop you for a minute? He said, you got some, you got some time? And I said, yes, sir. And he was like, uh, started packing this shit up. I'm like, damn, what the fuck going on? He packed this shit up, man. He said, follow me. Went out to the par- parking lot, he got in his car, he said, follow me. I drove him, followed him to Stockbridge High School. We go in the building, he opens the door. It goes in his office. He back in the file cabinet. He has shit bumping. Boom, 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 boom. He come back. He has his balled up ass contract. He smoothed that shit out best he could. And he's like, hey, hey, this job is yours if you want it. When you know, you know. Sign right here. And I was like, I ain't think about it. I just signed a contract. But he knew what was up because every day for the next month and a half, I was getting calls from every school in the district, but I'd already uh, got hired there. The next person called me, I was a Friday, the next person called me was the, the um, first principal at Destin High School. Her name was Dewala Nobles. You know, and I was like, oh no, Dr. Hurt got, he uh, offered me the job yesterday on the spot. And she was like, damn it, I should have did the same thing. I knew I wanted you. 
He was like, all right, well, good luck. Now, yeah. this feels almost like poetic justice because you weren't getting recruited, but then you were, but now, finally, in your life, mm-hmm. this was your purpose. Because mm-hmm. we all think we know. Right. Oh, well, I'm Phil Stark. I'm going to be a football player. Right. But life is the greatest teacher That's right. out of anybody. That's and right. it taught you that when it's time, you're going to be chosen and you they're going to get you. It's not going to be waiting around. There's not going to be no other contracts. They're going to see what they want in you and they're going to get you. And your purpose was to mentor and educate. And also, the moment we've all been waiting for to become an Omega man. Please tell us about what does it mean to be in that frat and what does that brotherhood mean to you? Well, I mean, it's really quite simple but complex to some who can't even fathom the connectivity that we have. It's just men of like ideals, like-minded individuals who come together in the name of friendship and fraternity to provide service, which is our watchword. You know, so, I mean, people see one thing, but they don't know the the depth of what we provide. They they, they see us out and about having a good time. They think, oh, these guys are wild. But folks don't realize that on on every yard, every campus that has our illustrious frat, our GPAs were the highest. Always. Scholarship. Scholarship. That's one of our cardinal principles. Manhood is the first. Manhood, scholarship, perseverance, and uplift. Who are we to, to, to succeed, you know, as a man, to persevere, to gain that knowledge through scholarship and not bring somebody up, not lift as we climb. Our inherent motto. Come on now. I could talk all day about my frat. But I digress. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I just think it's, you know, I think I tell Shan, you know, and even before I met you, it was like two strikes. You were in the military and you're in the frat. You're like, this dude is a supreme asshole. He has to be. Because you think a military guy is going to be wild and everything's going to relate back to the military. And you think a fraternity guy, everything is going to be about the frat and you got to be this man and that. And you are completely opposite. What makes you you? And that you're more than any of that. What makes you different than those stereotypes that I know you know about frats and mm-hmm. about being in the military? What sets you apart from that? Because you're your own man. Even though you represent both proudly, mm-hmm. right. what makes you you? Well, regardless of any affiliation that one might have, you can only expect to be the best you that you can be, right? So I invest in me to try to make me better. And I didn't join the military to, you know, one, to, to live off the legacy of the military and to be braggadocious about that. I didn't join the frat to get women and, and, and prestige and things of that nature. You know, I joined the organizations to make the organizations better, mm-hmm. right? I, brought, I bring, you know, a uniqueness to the, ta- to the table that is inherent in me. You know, the frat didn't make me. I like to think that I helped make the frat better. Mm-hmm. You know, those that just go and throw t-shirts and try to, 
you know, bag pussy off of the reputation of the friend, change their image. Some people have changed their image, lost families trying to, you know, uh, live up to a perceived, a perception that others have. You know, you have to be different. You yeah, know, if you talk, you, if you if you spell the word unique at the end of that, unique, it's Q. Yeah. That's me. That's you. That's I'm the you. Q at the end of unique. And I think that's just important message that you could be a part of many things. You could even be in a family, but the family could change and they could be one way. But you could I always got to be you, and no matter that's right. anything you do. So I like to look at you as a mentor and. A leader, what is it about this like mentoring kids and youth and anybody that want to listen? Why has that been your passion? Why has that been your legacy? Why do you push towards doing that every chance you get? You're currently out of school right now, uplifting kids and trouble kids and really helping. You really, you not on the internet talking about what you're doing. You don't say shit on the internet. You really actually doing it. What made you? And what made you just want to do that? What is your passion for? Where does it come from? Well, one, you know, just going back to my story, had I had a go-to person that I felt comfortable enough to say, you know, talk about things that weren't comfortable, you know, to say, hey, man, I got all these scholarship offers, man, to play football and lacrosse, but I have to go in the military. You know, if I had somebody to help me chase that squirrel down the hole to figure out what's what, even though I feared breaking my mom's heart, maybe somebody that could have got this information for me so that I could have broken to my mom and said, hey, look, we don't have to do this military shit. We can pursue this, you know? Um, just providing a service. Like, a lot of the kids that I've had the, you know, the privilege of coming in contact with, they, you know, they, they lack certain things. And I know if we, you know, limit the things that they lack, and, and, and limit the distractions by keeping them on the right path, motivating them, telling them, hey, even when things seem fucked up, see that shit through, you know? And there is light at the end of the tunnel. Everybody has valley moments. Mm-hmm. Everybody walks through the valley of, the shadow, of shadow of death, right? Mm-hmm. You know? But you, you got to keep going. You have to keep going because you'll come out of that, you're going to come out of that valley one day. You know, a better person. You're going to be stronger, more experienced. And when you come across these things, these pitfalls that you're going to find in this thing called, we call life, you're going to be better and more equipped to help someone else. And you know what? That's When you said life, it just made me think that when you go to jail and you get sentenced to life, That'll put it in perspective how important life is and how you should live your life right. to the fullest because this is a judge in a courtroom saying your life mm-hmm. is going to be spent in a cell. So I feel like people are mentally spending life in a cell when they go through those peaks and the valleys and they cower. Mm-hmm. You got to come out of that That's shit because right. shit is going to happen. But the beauty is when you come out of it, you can appreciate everything. Mm-hmm. You appreciate having nice things. You That's appreciate right. where we at now. That's right. You seen this shit That's where right. we sitting at right now as dirt. Right. And built up in your name off the sweat off of your back and the thoughts in your mind. Mm-hmm. So for people, you gotta break out of that shit. We telling you a story here of how this man didn't have much at all. 
But in his mind, he was like, I'm going to get out of that. Now, he could fall into alcoholism and womenism and all these isms and bad things that can have him stuck because, oh, this happened when I was young. I ain't have nothing. So he could be Phil Stark at 20 in his head and stay there. Or he could be the man that he is now at the age that he is now because he's went through all these things and he's been through it. So all I want to do with this podcast is tell these stories of people I think are unique and great and just show them that we're just people and we all go through things and let's hear each other's stories and let's make each other great because, I mean, there's greatness in everybody, but I do believe some people hit a rock and they hit that peak and they don't get out of it. You got to get out of it because it's beauty. If you didn't have shit and now you have shit, if you think back as we doing this podcast, where you was at when you were filling up those glue and everything in your shoe, you probably could never imagine this life now. Right. It, it, to me, I've exceeded in my young life a lot of things I've never imagined. So literally, everything is extra. Now, it's like, I mean, I mean, I, I just wanted to have a decent life. That's it. I didn't really aspire to be much. You know, it's like, I just want to be a good guy and make people laugh and mm. that's it. But everything is just a plus now. And I know a plus for you is that I definitely don't want to leave the podcast uh, without saying that you did have a son. After many years later down That's the right. line, That's right. you did have your own namesake. How was that to get a boy and for it to be pretty much a surprise almost like, oh, yeah. whoa. Yeah. So, you wasn't even thinking about a kid. So again, um, I, I coached football because I love the sport, but I didn't have a son of my own to pour the knowledge that I had that I wanted to share with a son. And I've always prayed and wanted, a, you know, my own, my own son. And, you know, one day I just came to the realization and I was like, okay, I stopped praying about a son. And I was like, okay, God, maybe it's not meant for me to have a son. And I, I just said, hey, <laughs> subject to your will and, and, and I will be done. And she, next thing I know, my wife is just losing her mind. And I'm like, what the fuck is going on? And I was online at the time. I was, I was going through a serious process, right? And um, I was like, whoa, you know? But I was like, I remember this vaguely because shit, my, my, my youngest child was like 13, 14 years old. And uh, I was like, nah, I can't be. So, and I was still in the military, so what I did, I was like, okay, I, on the way home from work, I stopped by the, uh, the drugstore, and I picked up a, preg a pregnancy kit. And, um, you know, I came into my wife, greeted her. I said, hey, how you doing? How was your day? You know, went through that. I said, can you do me a favor? And she said, what? I said, and I handed it to her. And she just started laughing and said, you crazy. I said, humor me. And she goes in the bathroom, she, you know, handles her business and come out. And she was like, this can't be right. Because it was, it was positive. And I was like, well, shit, that's why they put two in the box. I said, fuck, piss on this one, too. And I handed the other one. And sure enough, she was pregnant. So we, you know, go to the, you know, the doctor set up appointments and stuff like that. And shit, come to find out, she was like fucking four months pregnant. Four months pregnant, you know, and 
Did uh, you know that was going to be a boy? Or were you no, confident? Or no, you just got your hopes no, down? No, I, I, I already accepted the fact that... See, girls running in my family. Yeah. Girls running in our family, there are no boys. Mm-hmm. My brother and I, that's it. That's it. You know? But, um, so I was like, uh-uh. You ain't even gonna get your hopes up. No, I didn't. And then, um, we, you know, I went to all her appointments, of course, and uh, I remember being up at an appointment over on, um, in, in Jonesboro, over there by South Lake Mall, because went to an appointment up there, because she had to see a specialist, because she was having, you know, some, some challenges, um, during the pregnancy, and, uh, you know, um, went in there, and the nurse was like, um, do you know the sex of the baby? I was like, nope. And she said, would you like to know the sex? I was like, nope. And she was like, well, what? Father wouldn't like to know that his wife is about to have their son. And I was like, don't fucking do that to me. I said, no. I said I didn't want to fucking know. And now you didn't tell me. Now you got my hopes up. And you showed me on the ultrasound and this, that, and the third. And I'm like, I've been down this fucking road before. Yeah, let's not You play. know, don't play with me. And I, I was mad. But sure enough, May 10th, 2003. Young King. <laughs> Young King. Yes, born. sir. So, the Pool of Prince. Hey, hey, when he was born, I bought him a crown. <laughs> yeah, I bought him a crown, for real. And I did that. Tumble, I'm up in the air and shit, man. I was so fucking proud. Man, we, man, it's just amazing that, you know, and that's life again. That when it seemed like this is the story of your life, it's like you thought you wanted certain things, but you do get them. It right. just may be in Different, another way. Yeah, another way. And, you know, and that's just a metaphor for anybody in their life. If you're listening right now and your life ain't really going the way you want it to be, just keep living. You know, right. you gotta keep living right. because you never know. You know, they show memes and stuff of somebody in a in a coal mine in the Diamond is right there, but one gave up and one is right next to it. Right. That might be you listening right now. So you got to just keep going, stay positive, stay a good person. Don't let this world get you down. You just got to be good, man. And you start, man, and start naming. You just raised a great family you have. A beautiful wife, that. supportive, one of the most supportive. Whether you right or wrong, I can shoot somebody broad daylight in front of anybody and my mother-in-law would not think I did it. I could do it right there and she would not claim it. That support you get from that woman makes her special and there's nothing like it. They don't build them like that. They don't build loyalty and stuff like that. Then you have Shikaza, great, funny, and she's a light to many people. She brings joy to a lot of people. It, she, you know, it lightens up the room. That's just her spirit. Then you have a queen that I married, you know, that is just a lot. She's special. She's quiet. She gets the, that quiet side and that she got stuff from you. And, you know, and she just lightens up everybody. She's a special light. And then you have your son. That's a mixture of both. Right. He has both sides of him. He's just a mixture. And he's his own man. And he's growing up now. He's going through different things in his life that he's excited. It's a good big day for him. You know, and he keeps going every day. And you just come from a good legacy. So that name Stark, what is that name Stark? We talk about Stark, Stark, Stark. You see Stark. When mm-hmm. I see it, I see it different. And I see it and it looks special to me 
Cause I know the blood, sweat, and tears and the legacy mm -hmm. that you put into it. What does that name Stark mean? Stark means strong in German. Alright? And, and, and I think it's fitting because coming from where I've come from and, 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 and raising my family, it, it took strength. And I didn't get the strength from lifting weights. I didn't get the strength from, you know, the military and push-ups and sit-ups and carrying 80-pound rucksacks on my back and all that crazy shit that I used to do. You know, I got, I got this strength. I gained this strength through, through knowledge, perseverance, through, through challenges, through turmoil. You know, the, the scripture said that what does not kill you will make you stronger. And the things that I've gone through in my life, I, I'm, you know, I, I deserve this Superman tattoo on my arm, you know, because Stark means strong and super and that I am and that we are. And that, that's a great way, man. And I like to end it off, you know, I like speaking things to existence. I ask the guests to speak something into existence. So your legacy, what is your legacy going to be? So it's all said and done. When you lay your work down, and it's just time for you to leave this earth a greater place than it was before they seen you. What will it be when they think of the name Philip Andre Stark? So it is my hope and my prayer and my wish that when I take my last breath and when the last shovel of dirt is on my casket and I'm headed to Omega Land where the streets are paved in gold, I just want my family, the people that I leave behind, to carry on the knowledge and the dreams that I have for them to be better. I don't want them to, to, to ever struggle the way I struggle because I think that's be going, that'll be going backwards. That's counterproductive. And I want them to share that knowledge with their kids and their kids to share it with their kids. So that the Stark name will always be, and even if the, the, the Starks, the original Starks are not here, that, that, that vision, that desire, the goals, the dreams will still manifest that stuff through the people, through their offspring. That's what makes us strong. That is my hope. And that's beautiful. And I think you're doing a great job of that. And I think... Uh, um, this is a great interlude. <laughs> My mother-in-law, we are, she loves football, but I, um, I think we are almost at an hour and a half. I think it was a great conversation. And I just think, man, the Stark name will be carried on. I think you did a good job. And um, we uh, dedicated around that time when we lost a beautiful gentleman, Papa. When we lost him, we dedicated the episode to him that we did a while back. But this one is dedicated to Mama Francis and the one and only Duke. That's what's up. And this is recorded.